This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Well, thank you for having me here this evening. I don't know how many of you are philosophers, probably not a ton. So if this is your first philosophy lecture, if you're rather unfamiliar with it, I'm sorry. But it's going to be, and if you have a headache, just think about it this way, right? There are good headaches, there are bad headaches. The good headaches are the ones that you get when you're drinking a really cold milkshake on a hot day, right? You call those brain freeze. So what I'm hoping is that you leave here with a bit of brain freeze this evening and you want more, right? That's the goal. Now follow your handouts because they're going to be helpful. Largely what I'm going to be doing is to going through St. Thomas Aquinas' fourth proof for the existence of God. So the first page of your handout has the actual English text, or the English translation of Aquinas' text, that's most common, plus what, uh, what, I, what is my reconstruction of the argument in step-by-step -step form, and what I'm going to do is go through and explain why each step in this argument, um, how it's supposed to work, and why it proves what it says it's supposed to prove. On the back of your handouts are a bunch of quotes that are going to help explain part of the reason why I think each of these, what we call propositions, are true. Right? So each of the numbered um, sentences on the first page are what we call propositions that are parts or steps in a particular argument. Now this evening, again, like I mentioned, I'm going to be talking about the fourth way of St. Thomas's famous five ways. And this is, in many ways, the argument most distasteful to modern sensibilities and resistant to friendly contemporary analysis. After all, it's, the argument, it's an argument from gradations of being, and this sounds to many philosophers today like platonic mysticism, which is supposed to be a bad thing. But this particular argument has been a favorite of no less a Thomist as Father Lawrence Dewan, who maybe you haven't heard of, but a lot of us Dominicans have heard of and admire him. And, you know, God rest him, he was, a, he was a good man and a good philosopher. And he picks this out as his favorite of the five ways of St. Thomas. And so uh, one, one of the things that we need to do is to look carefully at the argument and see not only how it works, but why it's interesting and why it's eminently reasonable if we understand the metaphysics, or at least parts of the metaphysics, this is not going to be a metaphysics course, of course, um, of the arguments behind the arguments that he's using. So to begin, well, let's just look at what the English text says. And again, this is at the top of the first page of your handout. So St. Thomas says that the fourth way is taken from gradations to be found in things. Among beings, there are some more and some less good, true, noble, and the like. But more and less are predicated of different things, according as they resemble in their different ways something which is the maximum. As a thing is said to be hotter, according as it is more nearly resembles that which is hottest. So that there is something which is truest, something best, something noblest, and consequently, something which is uttermost being. For those things that are greatest in truth are greatest in being, as it is written in Metaphysics Book 2. Now the maximum in any genus is the cause of all in that genus, as fire, which is the maximum heat, 
is the cause of all hot things. Therefore, there must also be something which is to all beings the cause of their being, goodness, and every other perfection. And this we call God. All right, so it makes sense, right? You're all on board? You got it? (laughs) See how it works? All right, good. Now, but just in case it doesn't, we're going to look at the, the steps that I've, how I've reconstructed this. So the, the seven steps that you have, the propositions that you have on your handout, these are my interpretation, my reconstruction of each part of how this argument is supposed to work. And it goes like this. The first proposition says, if some property is instantiated by degree, then something must instantiate that property to a maximal degree. Second step, the properties of good, true, and noble, etc., are all instantiated by degree. What we mean by that is that you can be more or less good, more or less true, more or less noble, etc. Therefore, in step three, there is something that instantiates these properties to a maximal degree. And that follows from the first two. Then we introduce a new premise in premise, in premise four, proposition four, that if there is something that is maximally true, then there is something that is maximally being. Therefore, there is something that is maximally being that just follows straightforwardly from the previous propositions. Then we have six, a new premise. Uh, each maximum in any genus is the cause of all in that genus. Therefore, the conclusion, the maximum being is the cause of all beings. In this, we call God. All right. Now, I'm sure that, of course, is also still maybe a little bit less clear. So the way I'm going to then approach the rest of this talk is just go step by step and try to explain each of these propositions in order and why they should make sense. And if they don't make sense to you at the end, that's why we have a question and answer. <laughs> so. Now... Um, the ones, the, now premise uh, four and six. So there are conclusions, right? Three, five, and seven are all conclusions. So this argument really depends upon the truth of one, two, four, and six. This is how logic works, right? Conclusions are depend on the propositions that come before it. So if we get those right, then all the conclusions don't need any more defense other than the fact that they conclude validly from what comes before. So the ones I'm going to be looking at are simply premises one, two, four, and six. And four and six are usually the ones that modern people find most difficult to swallow. But to make sense of those, um, I, I want to make sure that we get in, a little bit into, uh, spend, spend some time on the first two premises, because that's where a lot of the work is being done. So we'll begin at the beginning and look at premise one, which says that if some property is instantiated by degree, then something must instantiate that property to the maximal degree. Or what we're saying is that if something is more or less um, a particular quality or property, then there has to be something that is most. Okay. Now, while this is not crazy place to start, we might be forgiven for thinking that it's a little bit dubious to think, to think that just because there is something that is more or less a particular property, that there has to be some maximum. So why should we believe that when some property is instantiated by degree, there must be some maximal instantiation? 
Well, Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas, is actually taking this premise from Aristotle, because he's a very good Aristotelian, and from Aristotle's notion of what it means to be more or less. So in one of Aristotle's works called The Categories, in chapter 6, Aristotle discusses what we call the category of quantity. These are numbers, geometric shapes, all that sort of thing. And it seems that this would be the ideal place to talk about more or less. After all, when we think about more or less, we think of like, you know, two is more than one, three is more than two, all that stuff. So we think that really when we talk about more or less, we need to talk about some sort of quantitative value, right? But it's interesting to observe, at least I think so, that Aristotle insists that more and less, large and small, are not properly quantities. They are relations. Here's what Aristotle says. Someone might say that, and this I think should be on the back of your handout. Someone might say that many, in, meant that many is contrary to few or large to small. None of these, however, is a quantity. They are relatives. For nothing is called large or small just in itself, but by reference to something else. For example, a mountain is called small, yet a grain of millet, large. And because one is larger than the other of its kind, while the other is smaller than the other of its kind. Right? So this is, it's, a very, it's a very basic conception, right? Not everybody can have a name little, like I do, and be absolutely little, right? Most people are little in comparison to others. So before I became a Dominican, I used to be tall. When I became a Dominican, it turns out there are a lot of tall Dominicans. So I became average size, right? I'm, I'm actually living in a house with people who are taller than six foot two on a regular basis. So that's a relative property, right? In the normal world, I tend to be a taller person. But among Dominicans, I'm just an average height. And then the person who happens to be average height in the world tends to be very short among us. But that's because, so what that shows us, right, is that taller, shorter, bigger, larger, these are comparatives. They're not absolute terms. They're relative terms. And so, um, and this re so this remark of Aristotle seems correct, right, that greater and lesser are not quantitative terms but relative terms. Um, and we actually talk about these grammatically as comparatives because they are true in comparison when you compare one thing to another. And it may change when you compare the same thing to a different thing. Okay, you might be saying, so what? How does classifying degrees of instantiation within the category of relation help us with understanding the first premise of the fourth way? Well, it helps in this way. Relations always require at least two things. These two things. So if something uh, instantiates a property to a degree, we can only determine the degree of instantiation when the, it is in relation to some other thing, right? And so that means if there is something that is less, there has to be something that is more. And then there has to be something then that is absolutely the most instantiated version of this. And so building on this, right, this discussion of relations in the categories ends up saying that relations of more and less are determined by what Aristotle calls contraries. 
And this is a key move in Aristotle because contraries have a very special understanding that make the truth uh, in, in Aristotle, that make the truth of premise one obvious to a card-carrying Aristotelian like myself. So Aristotle argues in his work called The Physics, book one, chapters five through seven, and also in his book called The Metaphysics in book 10, that contraries are fundamentally a relation between having a property without qualification and being deprived of that property without qualification. So what we mean is if you have, say, a square, a square hole, right? That square hole does not have a square peg. But when you put the peg into it, then it has the peg unequivocally. So there is having something and not having something. The form of something, as Aristotle would say, and the deprivation of that form. And so these are what kind of constitute the extremes of any sort of gradation in something. That you either have something fully, or you don't have it at all, or you have it somewhere in between. And so by saying that properties that are instantiated in degrees of more and less must be determined along a spectrum of contraries, Aristotle is saying that all more and less relations fall somewhere in the middle of this extreme having something and extreme not having something. That's just what makes it to be a gradation of more or less between two ends. Now, I don't have time to go into too many of the intricacies of this. I wrote a whole dissertation on it, after all, and I don't want to bore you too much. You can read the book when it comes out, I'm sure. But if, the, you know, if this is true, what I'm saying, and I think it is, that all instances of degree fall upon a certain spectrum of having or not having a particular property, then premise one is uncontroversially true. That if there is a degree of something, then there has to be a maximum of that degree. Because that's how you get the whole spectrum in between. And that Aquinas is, in fact, presuming this notion of more and less that always falls along, always falling along a spectrum between having and not having a property is evident from a related passage to our argument found in another work of St. Thomas called the Questiones de Potentia. And there, St. Thomas says this, that he says the second argument of the one he was talking about is that whenever something is found to be in several things by participation in various degrees, it must be derived by those in which it exists imperfectly from that one in which it exists most perfectly, that is the most perfect extreme. Because where there are positive degrees of a thing so that we ascribe to it this one more and to that one less, this is in reference to the one thing to which they approach, one thing nearer than another. For if each one were of itself competent to have that property, there would be no reason why one should have it more than another. Thus fire, which is the extreme of heat, is the cause of heat in all things that are hot. This is an Aristotelian theory about how chemistry works. Now there, is, now there is one being most perfect and most true, which follows from the fact that there is a mover altogether immovable and absolutely perfect, 
as philosophers have proved. Consequently, all other less perfect beings must needs derive being therefrom. This is the argument of the philosopher in Metaphysics, Book 2, Chapter 1. So this is a passage from a different work of Aquinas that mirrors very closely the passage that we're reading from the fourth way. And it even cites the same passage from Aristotle's book, The Metaphysics. So clearly, Aquinas is thinking about the same thing in both places. But here, right, he makes it more explicit that more and less should be understood as more and less along a spectrum from totally having a property to not having it at all. Right? And so if that's the case, then clearly if you have something in the middle, it's only in the middle because there is this extreme of having that property. Now, before moving on, I want to make one more observation, and this is regarding what St. Thomas means by maximum, having a property in a maximum sort of way. Now, we must resist thinking of a maximum here in terms of numeric value. Why? Well, because numbers can keep going on to infinity, right? If I keep counting, I'm never going to count enough that I'm going to stop before I die, right? We just, numbers are infinite in of when we keep adding on to them in that way. Um, so it's tempting to think of a maximum in terms of numeric value. And while this can be true in some cases, I think it's better to think of the maximum here as being unqualified. That is, without any sort of degree, without any sort of lessening. And so degrees are of more and less, or what we might call the qualified instantiation of a property. Whereas the maximum instantiation of a property is an unqualified, undiluted um, version of that property. So let's take examples using colors. So take the color blue, right? There is some color blue, which is, we can say that we, when we come across blue, we always come across blue in particular shades, right? You have navy blue, you have baby bird blue, right? You have cobalt blue. You have all sorts of different blues. You have blues that tend more towards the cooler spectrum and are purplish. You have blues that tend more towards the warmer spectrum and are greenish, right? There are all sorts of blues. And, but, if, but there is one prop, presumably, because there are degrees, right? Then there is one property that just is the most blue of the blues, right? And we would call this blue in an unqualified sense, and all of the other shades of blue, we would call qualified versions of blue. So we have blue here, then we have greener blues, and then we have more purplish and reddish blues going in that direction, if you think of the color wheel. Um, but we can only understand the shading in either direction when we have a clear meaning of what it means for something to be blue in an unqualified and unmixed sense. doesn't mean we've seen it, but at least that we understand that there is something like this out there. And so that then is the sense in which I think we need to understand what it means for something to be a maximum on a scale of more and less. It is simply the unqualified, undiluted, unmixed version of what it is that we are talking about. And with that, I think we can now see why St. Thomas thinks that this statement, this statement is not only plausible, but uncontroversial, since it depends upon a plausible and fairly sophisticated argument from Aristotle on what makes something more or less. 
Now, there are some objections that can be brought against this view from a contemporary standpoint, certainly in terms of in modal terms. But I think that um, they can be answered. And if you didn't understand anything that I just said, don't worry about it. So if you want to challenge me on the modal plausibility of premise one, I'd be happy to discuss that in the question and answer period. But if you don't care, then don't worry. <laughs> All right, so moving on to premise two. So this premise says that the properties of good, true, noble, etc., are all instantiated by degree. So this is a claim about particular properties. So St. Thomas definitely thinks that this premise is intuitive, right? That it's just right, that there are things that are better and worse, that is, spectrum of good, that there are things that are nobler and less noble, that there are things that are truer and falser. Um, and so most people who have a problem with the fourth way actually do not have a problem with this particular premise because it seems to be the case that some things just are more and less good, more and less true, more and less, uh, and less noble. So I'm going to be brief here. I'm just going to, I just want to highlight the fact that truth can come in degrees since the rest of the argument depends upon degrees of truth. And this may seem unusual, especially to people who are familiar with logic, because we have a rule in logic that says that there is, um, we call it, it the, you know, that there is no middle between true and false. So because something comes in truer or falser uh, degrees, doesn't mean that there's a middle between true and false. It's just that when you have the truth, it can be closer to the truth maker than farther away from the truth maker, um, or falser insofar as it's closer or farther away from the truth maker, from being made true by the truth maker. And again, that would be a question we could talk about in the question and answer period, if you cared. Uh, but if not, don't worry about it. So, but St. Thomas is drawing on, on Aristotle's metaphysics for this particular point. So in book four of the metaphysics, Aristotle says the following, that he who thinks that four is five is not equally as wrong as he who thinks that four is a thousand. Okay? So therefore, if they are not equally as wrong, obviously one is less wrong and so more right. Hence, if what is truer or nearer to what is true, there must be some truth to which the truer is nearer. I should also note, right, that this particular passage comes very close to the passage, for you philosophers out there, where Aristotle actually articulates the principle of the excluded middle, which says there is no middle between truth and falsity. So clearly Aristotle doesn't think that this violates that. All right. If you didn't understand, again, don't worry about it. But there is actually a lot to unpack in this particular passage, but I'm going to bank on the idea that you, you buy the fact that somebody who says that five, is, that four means five and four means a thousand are not equally wrong. And if you think that's true, then we've got premise two. So we'll move on then to premise four. So premise four. There's an awful lot of flipping going on there. I hope this, is it making sense so far? Okay, we'll keep going. So um, premise four says if, right, so premise three follows necessarily from one and two based on logic. So premise four is a new thing that we need to talk about to understand its truth value. And this says that if there is something that is maximally true, then there is something that is maximally being. 
This is one of the, two, of the two premises that are most hard to swallow for contemporary philosophers. So why does St. Thomas make this connection between truth and being? There are a couple different routes that one can take to show why St. Thomas allows, is allowed to make this move. One, the most popular way to justify this move is by pointing to what we Thomists and many Aristotelians call the doctrine of the transcendentals. This is a move taken by such diverse personalities as Monsignor John Whipple of Catholic University and Ed Fazer. These two are not exactly a natural pairing in a lot of ways, but in this instance, they are one. They're very similar on the way that they approach this argument. And so the idea behind this approach is that if the medieval theory of transcendentals is true, then being and truth are convertible, such that what we say about truth can also be said about being. So what the transcendentals are, uh, the transcendent, there are five transcendentals. There is being, there is truth, there is multiplicity, there is oneness uh, and goodness. Yeah, and truth, I said truth a little bit too early on there. Truth should come around at the time of goodness. So yeah, so those are the five. And what we say is that in their most absolute sense, right, they're convertible. So something that's true also exists, is also one thing, right, is also different from other things, which allows for multiplicity. So the transcendental is what you say of one, what is true of one is also true of the other, we might say. And so this is one of the ways, without going into the details, um, Phaser and Whipple and others will use this notion of the transcendentals to say that if you believe this, then premise four is just obviously true, right? Now, I have to say that grounding premise four in the transcendentals is definitely not wrong, but I'm not sure if that's the best way to understand its truth value. For the simple reason that the transcendentals are called such because they transcend all the genera of being. But in premise six, Aquinas explicitly uses the no notion of a genus to derive his conclusions. And so I think, I don't think the use of the transcendentals is, way, is what's justifying Aquinas's move from saying something is truer or less truer means that there are things that are more or less being. So I propose instead that we look at the text of the metaphysics that Aquinas cites here and see if that helps us to understand this point in particular. So here's what Aristotle says. But we know a truth only by knowing its cause. Now, anything which is the basis of univocal predication about other things has that attribute in the highest degree. Thus, fire is hottest and is actually the cause of heat in other things. Therefore, that is also true in the highest degree, which is the cause of all subsequent, being, all subsequent things being true. For this reason, the principle of things that always exist must be true in the highest degree, because they are not sometimes true and sometimes not true. Nor is there any cause of their being but they are the cause of being of other things. Therefore, insofar as each thing has being, to that extent it is true. 
Right, so here, the key feature of, this rela- of the relationship between truth and being in this passage is that the way things exist causes our concepts of those things to be either true or false. And so this causal character is what is key because the way things are causes our concepts of them to be true. And what this then means is that truth tracks being. So let me give an example. So say I have an idea, right? Socrates is sitting. Now, this, it is true, it, this is true if and only if there is a man, Socrates, who is sitting at the same time and in the same res- respect as I am thinking of it. So if my thought of, the, of Socrates sitting matches up with some actual Socrates sitting in the manner in which I'm thinking of it. And so the fact of Socrates' sitting makes my concept to be true. Or let's look more closely at the example that Aristotle himself gives and that St. Thomas uses in the fourth way, the example of fire. Now we should note here that fire in the argument is not the common fire that you and I know and love, the fire in our hearts, the fire on the gas stove, or, you know, Anything that you like candles with, I guess. That's, that's not the fire that's, that Aristotle means and what Aquinas mean when they talk about fire in the context of this argument. Fire here is what Aristotle calls an element. The ancient, and so fire really is the ancient version of what we might think of as quarks or leptons or whatever the most fundamental things in physics are. So according to Aristotelian physics, all the material world, all material things have only four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. Now, each of these elements is characterized by by two qualities and by one quality in particular, right? So So the four qualities that diversify these are hot and cold, wet and dry. So you have... And then each of the elements, earth, air, fire, and water, are kind of specially one of these properties. So earth is especially related to being dry. Water is especially related to coldness. Air is especially related to wetness. Remember, Aristotle lived on an island in the Aegean, so the air was probably rather moist most of the time. And fire is characterized by the property of heat. And so the element of fire just is what makes anything hot. Anything that is hot has fire as part of its composition, of its elemental properties. Now, however, since this chemistry, we might say, or physics is a little bit outdated in its particulars, we may, we, there may be a better way to understand the example here in, in more modern terms. So if we think about the air that we're breathing, right? The air is breathable precisely because it is oxygenated and be precisely oxygenated at a certain level, right? And, um, and it's oxygenated because there are oxygen atoms within it that compose it. Now, there are more than just oxygen atoms, right? and have nitrogen, hydrogen, there's carbon, there are a lot of other things floating around the air that we breathe that we don't really want to know about, so we don't think about too carefully. But the fact that air is breathable, that it allows us to live, to take in breath, to, to, you know, that is because it has oxygen. 
And so something is breathable precisely because it has oxygen. And this, this is the way that fire is working in this argument. Something is hot because it has fire. Something is breathable in our context because it has oxygen. So again, the point then, um, so then the truth about the breathability of the air is dependent upon the way that the, that the, um, uh, the gaseous substance that surrounds us is composed. Right? If it were composed mostly of nitrogen, we would suffocate very quickly, and that would be bad. So uh, the point is then that we can say that this air is breathable because it has oxygen, and that in general, that is, and that's true because of the way that the, that, the war, that the air is. And likewise, anything is true that we say because of the way that things are. Truth tracks being the way that I'm, I'm, I'm saying that. And so then Aristotle then goes on to say in the metaphysics passage that I just read, that if some object is caused to exist by something else, then its existence depends on that cause. In other words, causation is, when we, a fancy way of saying it in philosophy, causation is transitive. So if truth depends on the existence of something, and the existence of that thing depends on the existence of another thing, then the truth about the effect depends upon the truth about the cause of that thing. And just as cause, the cause is more being than the effect, so the truth about the cause is more true on Aristotle's account than the effect. Thus, Aristotle says, for this reason, the principle of things that always exist must be true in the highest degree because they are not sometimes true and sometimes not true, nor is there any cause of their being, but they are the cause of being in other things. The most being of things is the cause of being in all other things, essentially is what he's saying. So this then points back to the first of the, of the three, the first three of St. Thomas's five ways. So contextually, we're bringing it back to the context. This argument is the fourth in a series of arguments he gives for the existence of God. So part of what he's doing here, especially when it comes to this notion of being, is, I think, dependent on the first three arguments that he had leading up here. So if you want to know more, read those arguments and... Listen to other talks about them. That'll, that'll help to understand some of the concepts that's going on here that are, that are thrown into the souffle. So, but the point I want to make tonight is that degrees of truth implies degrees of being and that these degrees of being are related to the degrees of causation, whether something is a cause and also caused, or whether something is a cause and not caused. If it's a cause, but not itself caused, then it's more being. If it's a cause that depends on another cause, it's less being. So in sum, we can say that the truth of premise four is guaranteed by the truth of the doctrine of transcendentals for sure, but it is more proximately justified by Aristotle's epistemology, which states that truth is caused to be such by, the, by being, by the way things are. All right. So then we're going to move on to the last of the premises, which means we're coming to the end. You're almost done. If you have a headache, don't worry. You're about to be relieved. So discussion of premise, the, in premise six, we have 
the following statement. Each maximum in any genus is the cause of all in that genus. So with the previous considerations under our belt, right, and you, we can kind of, it, we have a lot of background now to be able to understand the truth of this premise. But many will say, well, why should we think that the maximum in a genus causes everything in that genus? For instance, why should we think that, for instance, animal is the cause of a human being who is a rational animal? Because animal is higher up in the genus than being just a rational animal. If you, if you think of genus and species as kind of like a tree, the genus is what's on top, the species is what's down below. And so presumably that which is more higher up in the category or in the, in the genus is going to be a cause in a way of what's lower down in the genus tree. So we say, why should we believe that that's also causative and not just descriptive? Well, there are a variety of creative ways to solve this particular issue. Um, and I'm, but I'm not going to go through them, largely because I think that a lot of what I've said about four can resolve that. Um, but genus here must refer to the property that gives rise to a spectrum of contrariety more and less, right? Genus just is whatever property it is that gives us the spectrum of more or less. That's what defines a certain grouping of things that are more and less true, more or less being. Um, and so remember, what gives us the spectrum more or less, right, is the existence of a pair of contraries, one that is unqualifiedly such, one that is totally deprived, and everything else which is partially like the maximum example of this, but failing to one degree or diluted to one degree or another. And so without this maximum uh, thing, the property, in its unqualified, uh, the property in its unqualified form, you not only cannot have any of the degrees of more or less, you can also not have the contrariety at all. For a privation makes no sense without the property that it's missing. And so the existence of that property is an unqualified, is an unqualified state that causes all of the degrees to be degrees of whatever that property is. It's maybe a little bit hard to swallow or even to follow. So let's go back to the example of fire. So in Aristotle's chemical theory, fire is unqualifiedly hot, right? And when you have a mixed body with both fire and water as elements, the heat in, the, the, the heat, um, in that body, right, is, part, is not as hot as the fire would be outside of the mixture because its interaction with the water make it less hot than it used to be because water is, on Aristotle's theory, cold. And so the coldness of the water lessens or qualifies the expression of, of the heat in the fire itself. But the existence of warmth in the body is due to the existence of fire in that body as well. And so fire has heat in an unqualified sense. So the unqualified expression of heat and fire is a cause of warmth in the mixed body insofar as the mixture with water cools the heat to a certain degree. So then going back to our argument in premises four and three, right, that gives us that there is a maximum. Um, and so anything that is more or less being is caused to be such because there is something which just is being in an unqualified sense. 
And if we understand genus here to mean the property that gives rise to a pair of contraries of more or less in a spectrum of intermediates, then it should be obvious and un that there is an unqualified thing that just is the cause of everything that has that property. And so if there is more and less being, there must be something that is most being. And this we call God. So with that, I've kind of come to the, uh, I've, I've completed the, examina the examination of the central premises of this argument. I hope it's a little bit clearer to you at this point. Um, or, and maybe more plausible if you didn't think so it was, if you didn't think it was before. Uh, now, much of it requires a robust understanding of Aristotelian physics and metaphysics, but so do all the five ways. So, you know, I encourage you, look at more of our Thomistic Institute talks, right? You know, uh, study Aristotle and Aquinas, preferably from Dominicans. But <laughs> there are some good non-Dominicans out there as well. I'm not going to name names since this is probably going to be posted online. So I don't want to show any favoritism yet. But anyway... So that's all I have for you this evening, and I'm now ready to take your questions. What's your question? Uh, some property is instantiated by degree. Something must instantiate that property to the maximal degree. Yes. I'm, I'm focused on the maximal degree. So thinking of the word maximal, does that mean the most degree or the perfect degree? Perfect, okay. which is the most. So it has it being unqualified. So this is why I was saying that you can't think of it in numeric values because you can always go higher in numbers. Think about it as the least diluted, the most perfect, the fullest version of whatever that is. Does that make sense? Yes, I guess I'm, it, it makes more sense to me that it would be most. I, I get for the purpose of the argument that it has to be perfect, but I, I can't see how perhaps it, it is perfect. So how are you understanding perfection there? That's making you hesitate. Because it's not perfection in a moral sense. So perfection in the ontological sense just means the most or not lacking any part of it. So the most has to be fully such without any sort of lack of that particular property. So the most has to be perfect. Yeah. But I guess like kind of as a follow-up to Brendan's question, like using truthfulness as an example, mm -hmm. um, someone can be the most true as in they, for example, speak the fewest lies. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I think this is basically what Brendan was asking. I'm, I can't reach the, the gap of, I can understand premise one saying, there must be someone who is the most true, that tells the fewest lies. Yeah. But how, and I can conceive of one who tells no lies, but how can I be sure that that person exists? That's right. Yeah. So. There, that's a good question. And um, so the question is, like, you know, I can conceive of, I'm trying to make sure that the, audience, the listening audience that's not here might get this. So the question is, um, I can think of somebody who's like the most true because this person never lies. How can I be sure that that is the most perfect version of this, right? And the answer there is the 
um, the individual is not actually, the person who doesn't lie, right? Any individual at any given time in the history of the universe, right, um, that instantiates the property of being the most truthful is not, is not the most truthful, right? Because when you consider that kind of spectrum thing, you realize that even a person that has this property is still has it in a qualified sense because it's made true by something that he does He's not the truth maker itself, so to speak. So this is not something that you can imagine, but when you get the kind of mechanics of the argument, it says that even the individual that at any given time might have, might express this, right, um, more than anybody else, just because this person here has it more than anybody else, that person is not necessarily the most. They're just more than everybody that we know here. So that's why the discussion about causation is so important and that what has something the most just is the cause of it. So people might be more truthful because they are being caused to be truthful you know, by, you know, by loving God or by keeping the law, by, by keeping a principle that I should always tell the truth or something like that. So the principle, one should always tell the truth, is actually um, a cause here because it's making the individual to never tell lies. So that's, so it's, it, it's not, so the instantiation part of this is only doing part of the work, right? The individuals can instantiate that, but then it points to something else, a principle or a being, right? That has this, that causes this to be the case and other things. Does that make sense? Does that help? With the perfection stuff? Well, think about it. We'll yeah. I, think, I think we're all kind of on the same vein. Like, bouncing off of that, in, in the realm of like color is a little bit easier for me to think about. Like, when yeah. you think about color, you, you, and, and I, think, I think this talk relates to the like, essence and existence. I, I think yeah. this is, because I think the big question is, okay, well, we can conceive of this principle of blueness, and you say the principle causes these things to be blue insofar as they're aligned with that truth of blueness. Yeah, yeah. But we don't see anything instantiated that, and, and so I think like, and, and that's one, I feel like one of the things that a lot of people have trouble with, with Aquinas, myself included, that idea of, like, I would normally think of blueness, and I could say, okay, there's this conception of ultimate blueness that doesn't have this property of existence, and I think in that yeah. distinction gets close to a lot of these things, but I think, I think that's the gap that a lot of us are stuck on. Yeah, so like, the kind of abstract notion of these things, like right. pure blueness, um, so that, that, that's not exactly the way that somebody like Aquinas and Aristotle are going to think about it in this context. So what you're getting at is right. So like if we were to do, do, do both like possible world semantics or anything like that or no? I've, I haven't formally read. I've had okay. some conversations with people. But... So like if you can think of if, if what we mean to have perfect blueness just is like a possible thing that we don't that that we've never seen but we think is probably out there. That's not what he means here. Right. So um, the way that the contrary stuff kind of works here is interesting. So when Aristotle's theory, of, in theory of color in particular, I love, I actually really like the theory of color. It's interesting. But he says, oddly, that all color is, a, is an intermediate between white and black. And you're like, most of us are like, wait a minute. That just gives you grays. How do you get all the colors? Right? But... Well, the way that Aristotle conceives of white and black, first of all, is actually in brightness and dimness, right? What, we, what in those in art might call value. So extreme brightness is one thing, and extreme blackness is, is total negative value. Um, 
But what, that still only gives you a grayscale. But what you realize is that all of what, what Aristotle actually says is each of the colors in between them add a new property, blueness, redness, and yellow, um, or other types of colors. So it's a new property that dilutes the brightness to one degree, or dilutes the blackness, darkness to another degree, right? And so like when we come across color, we actually don't come across pure white value or pure dark value. We come across colors that fall along the value scale, but are made such because of whatever the pure brightness is that's, that's involved, that's causative of this. And so in a way, right, white is, so forget about what you learn about the, the, the color spectrum. White on this account just is the most perfect color because it is the cause of the whole spectrum and is a contributing cause of all the other particular colors that come in between. It's probably still confusing, but I'm hoping that's unpacking a little bit more here. Yes. So wait, would that mean something like so? White would be the least amount of like the, the least of all colors. White? No, white's the most color. White is the most. Yeah. And then black would be the least. Yes, because black is the least amount is the total absence of any brightness. Okay. Total absence. Yes. Um, okay, so my question is related to how you were talking about how because we have degrees and there's also something that's a maximal degree. Yep. My question is, can you also make the argument that because we have a maximum degree, there's a minimum degree, and because that minimum degree exists, you can use that to prove the duality of God, of like light and dark, alpha and omega, first and ah. last, um, something, but also nothing at the same time? So, not quite. So, I mean, that's a good question, though. Um, so the, the way that that works is that certainly on most spectrums, most of these spectrums, right, you do get a maximum and a minimum, um, and the minimum being the pure absence of it. But when you get to the most basic things like being, the total opposite of being is non-being, which is not a thing. Right. And so um, one of the things that Aristotle does, and it's ingenious, because this was a problem among some of his predecessors, particularly Parmenides, who says, well, there's only being and there's non-being. And so therefore, like any sort of multiplicity or addition or duplicity, right, which create these degrees, all of that include non-being. But non-being is not. So they don't exist. So then he, he controversially says, there is no division. Everything is one, right? Um, because non-being can't, can't not exist, right? So Aristotle is going to say, no, you're right. You're right, Parmenides. Non-being can't exist, right? It's not the sort of thing that exists. But you can have degrees of being and lessening of being along the way. And we call these potencies or potentialities. So like it creates theoretically, a, there is a, a total non-being in opposition to the total being, but it, there is no there there. So it can't actually be a duality, so to speak. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned the, the transcendentals earlier, like that was Beauty, truth, and... Well, not beauty. Or not beauty, but... Some truth. people say beauty. I, I don't, but that's also a controversy, so... <laughs> <laughs> so, truth and being and all this. Where is... Does Aristotle reference those in... Like, oh. Where's, where's the, the framework for, for that set, basically? Ooh, that's a good question. Ask me later. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, we, yeah, we, we email me, and I'll, I can, we can give you more stuff on that, but I'm... 
getting a little tired, and I might make a mistake, and I don't want that recorded. So <laughs> <laughs> giving you the wrong inform citation information. So, uh, You mentioned earlier, like, um, gradations of being. So, like, if x is the cause of y, then x is more being than y, if I understood that correctly. Yeah. Maybe this is kind of the same problem as the gradations of truth, I guess. I guess I don't follow how being is not a binary thing. Can you explain the gradations of being a little bit more? So, um, so think about, okay, good. So, I'm holding this cup, right? The cup is in its place because the pen is in its place. The pen is in its place because my hand is there, right? So in a way, the cup being in this particular place is dependent upon the pen being there. And so the pen is more in that place or more in a place relating to it than the cup is, right? So it's really about dependence on being. Any sort of causation is a dependence in this sort of kind of direct structural sort of way. Okay. So that's why it's more being the more yeah. something has, has a something. Now it's, it gets a little bit more complicated, but it's a little bit, that when you understand formal causation, and that's part of what we're getting at here, um, is that any sort of formal causation is a direct dependence at every moment in the way that this cup depends directly on this pen in my hand at every moment for it to be here. Because when I let it go, it just kind of falls um, and goes back to its natural place, right? Which is a result of a different cause. We'd say gravity, this material composition, whatever it is. So, is that Thank you. Yes. Uh, this is more about a strategy you use, but why would you use the sort of like efficient cause uh, the ground six rather than the, the like formal one? Well, strategy-wise, because people understand efficient cause more than formality. It's unclear to me. But the formality might probably be the better way of going about doing that, but that was just to try to make it in general more understandable. Okay. So maybe not the best decision, but it's what I did. So yes. So going on the premise that if like something is generated, if something like relies on another for its being, then that thing, like y in that case scenario, would be less than uh, x. Mm -hmm. If if the son is generated by the father, would the son then therefore be less godlike than the father? But now you're talking about the persons of the Trinity. Well, yeah, I'm just saying, like by that logic. Though, oh, wait. how does that stand? So like, that's so that. If it depends on how you understand that. So if Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas is very particular about the language that we use. And generated, even though we, we use that, it's, he actually wants to use a, a different term. It's, we talk about processions and things like that. So in the way that we, are, we, we have to articulate it, um, especially when it comes to the Trinity, we need to make sure that we define the terms such that there is no causative power by God the Father. Right, because that would, of course, make him better on this account. So, so they need to be co-equal. So, yeah, so that's something in Trinitarian theology that is that 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 requires a very careful walking. <laughs> there, are the most amount of heresies in the church are relating to the Trinity. So, this is why I decided to go into philosophy. It's a lot safer. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. I have a question. Okay, so for premise four, you were defending it by using Aristotelian epistemology. And you were saying that, like, you know, I'm true in virtue of something else. Like, I'm true insofar as my beliefs conform to reality. Yep. So given divine simplicity, the fact that God has no parts and everything in God is God, does that help explain this more? Because in God, intellect and being are one and the same thing. So God is being as fully intelligible, and so he's intrinsically true, whereas 
I am true in virtue of something else in reference to. Sure. Yeah, sounds fine to me. <laughs> <laughs> Since you're back there, by the way, could I get some water? <laughs> Thank you. Any other questions? Yes. Hold on, hold on. We still got some questions. To what extent can we relate this argument to more like just like strictly moral arguments for God's existence? I like oh. if morality, then God morality. This this is definitely so. Don't take this, don't take this in moral terms, right? I mean, like um, that would be a very different argument for Aquinas, right? Moral reasoning just is a different type of knowing than scientific reasoning. So this is meant to be a scientific reasoning. Scientific reasoning can be known with certitude um, based upon uh, the proper kind of demonstrative techniques that you use. Moral arguments don't have the same, I mean, they have truth value, they have strong truth value, but they don't have the same sort of scientific basis. So that would have to be a different mode of going about the argument. Um, so, I mean, there are ways to introduce that, but that's just, it would be a very different approach than this. Mm-hmm. I remember earlier you said that numbers, like, with, you could, like, go on forever with them. Yep. Um, but doesn't, like, everything have, like, um, like, uh, you, like, you measure something, and you give it a number, but, like, the actual number is, like, slightly different. Ah. If you, you said, like, nine, something was nine inches, and then you said something, but the reality, the reality of that object is more like nine point zero zero, like six seven, whatever. But doesn't that number end? So um, I'm going to pull back a little bit from your question and just point to another feature of it that I really like, and that might help to understand to resolve it. If not, you can ask it again. But your use of the measuring unit is actually perfectly um, exemplifying what I'm talking about. So that. The use of the unit, the unit is what makes something to be measured in a particular way, right? So that is more um, than anything that it measures, right? So actually in ancient mathematics, one is not a number. One is just the unit by which you measure other things, right? And so um, now when you're talking, the types of things that are like decimals or degrees, right? Those can potentially go on forever, right? But that's, that's a result of irrational numbers and whatnot. So but, um, the key, what this depends upon, and then, so if you want to talk about ancient mathematics, we can at another point, but the key for this argument is that it's the measuring unit that is foundational and is causing the other things to be the number that they are. So like you, no matter how many times you use the unit to measure something else, right? That is the the more things that you measure doesn't makes them higher. What makes them what is better or more causative in this in this scale just is the unit that you're using to measure. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. Good. All right. So since he mentioned already uh, raised the question of other arguments for God's existence, can you comment on um, how it's similar or different to? There's two things that this makes me think of. One is Anselm's ontological argument that God is mm-hmm. that in which a greater cannot be thought that there's no being that could be more than God is, um, which, at least in my mind, is similar to what you're talking about. So you can comment. And then Descartes' idea of the the perfect triangle that there must be yeah. the perfect being. So can you comment on how those are similar or different? So um, actually, Saint Thomas re- uh, refutes something like Saint Anselm's argument in the question before this one. Um, so, but that so that's one thing. So clearly, Saint Thomas thinks that this is different than that. And part of the the reason is that the ontological argument is based on 
Um, it's an a priori argument, we might say, right? So without taking experience into account, this is actually meant to be an a posteriori argument, that when we, from our experience of things, we see more and less, and then that points to a greatest, which then points to a cause, right? So it's not just that I use these great-making properties, like in the Anselm argument or in, or in um, Descartes' a version of the ontological argument. I use these great making properties and say, look, I can think of something far greater than myself and, and therefore there must be something greatest, right, that is causing this. So in some ways, some of the mechanics are the same, but with them, they begin interiorly with the mind from an a priori. It's really about where they begin and then that then kind of, and then the reason why Aquinas might have a problem with it is that it stays in our thoughts. Whereas if we begin with things that we observe out there, it points to a greater reality that's also outside our thoughts. I mean, I could go into it more, but um, that's at least maybe a beginning. Okay. Mm-hmm. I have a follow-up to Joe's question, actually, about okay. like measuring. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I understand like, like an inch, for instance, is the most inchy of all things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's I right. Or like a meter, right, just yeah. is a bar that's held in yeah. Paris, or at least used to be before well, they yeah. get That's the thing, is those actually have, the meter and the kilogram have like physical standards, but I don't see why we grant that like one exists. So one is a concept which we use to, to scale things and to as we treat as unity, but I don't, how do we know that one exists, or does one exist? It doesn't. They yeah, saw on, the, on this on this mathematics, right? They're not Platonists. So if you were a Platonist, you would say that one does exist. Okay. But here, all one is indicating yeah. is a unified individual thing. Okay. I sorry. I guess this is my problem with premise one, actually. Okay. If, if, if I don't see. Um, I can see. I think we kind of covered this, but I kind of missed the answer, I guess. The most perfect thing can exist, but why does that mean the most perfect thing does exist? Like, um, in the, the thing having the most... No, so it's not, so you're expressing it in modal terms. Okay. I'm not saying that the most perfect thing can exist and therefore must exist. That's actually one of the ways in which the ontological argument works. No, it's not that. It's that when, you, when things come to more or less, right, you can only label something as more or less in comparison to something that just is that thing. Well, if, if, sorry, but why, is it, why does that thing have to be the most of its property? Let's say, like, I think Jupiter is the biggest planet ah. in the solar system, but so it has the most of the property of bigness in the solar system, okay. but there still exists planets which are bigger. So most is not, yeah, again, most is not according to incrementals, like, the, what you're talking about, the size of Jupiter in comparison with everything in the universe, right, is the largest within the universe. All right, um, and we can use that then, but we, but you know, just saying that it's the largest in comparison with everything else, what we're doing is we could say, well, it is the largest because given the confines that we're limiting to, it's the, it's the one that has the most size, right? But then if we find something bigger, that becomes a unit. But okay. then what that does is create a new scale. Okay. So the largest in any sort of scale becomes or is, right, the kind of end of that scale. But then when you start universalizing it, you realize that there's got to be something that has this, not just within a certain frame of reference or within a certain uh, scale, but even be, like just absolutely speaking. Okay, thank you very much.